January and February 2018 saw the Tintic Mining District in chaos. The two teens going missing had made national news, and the story of what happened to Breezy and Riley still had not fully come to light or taken shape. Did the teens run off together? Were they killed by the cartel over a drug deal gone wrong? Were Riley's mother Misty and her boyfriend Lee involved somehow? It would make sense with the matching toe strap found in the bed of Lee's truck and the rampant drug use that seemed to pervade the family. Who was this potential loose cannon Jared Baum? You know, the one who camped on the lawn in a chair and watched the police and his girlfriend Morgan like a hawk while they conversed in the police car in front of his house. There had to be something there, right? Courtesy of KSL News in Salt Lake City. Oh, we do have an update on the two teenagers reported missing since earlier this month. Police say that the evidence now points to foul play in their disappearance. Braylynn Otteson and Riley Powell were last seen leaving Tooele on their way home to Eureka. Their Jeep was found partially hidden in some trees about a mile south of Cherry Creek Reservoir. Police say that they now believe the Jeep was dropped there intentionally and not by the two missing teens. This is Saints and Sinners, True Crime in the History of the West. Part 2 of the story of the disappearance of Riley Powell and his girlfriend Breezy Otteson. Tintic Standard Mine Number 2. On Saturday, January 27, 2018, friends of Breezy Otteson gathered to celebrate her 18th birthday without her. They still had hope that maybe she was somewhere out there, possibly with Riley, still alive and celebrating this special day in her own way. They had cake and released balloons into the air. It's quite possible that they thought the balloons would float across the sky above a now 18-year-old Breezy who would be looking heavenward and somehow she would see them too, knowing of their love for her. Three days later, on January 30th, the communities of Eureka and Tooele held candlelight vigils for the two who had been missing for a month now. Their absence caused pain that many found too hard to bear. The next day, the warrants served to Misty Carlson were made public, and it was shocking for many in the community that Riley's own biological mother was one of the major suspects in the case. The media latched onto this and in some ways began to lynch Misty by way of the written and spoken word. The element of drug use was blown up and an already suicidal Misty was reeling. Even with the drug paraphernalia found in Misty and Lee's home and the possible matching toe strap, there wasn't anything located during these searches that conclusively tied them to the disappearance of the teens. The media took Misty's suicide attempt several nights prior in Wendover as sort of an admission of guilt a way to rid herself of a conscience racked with torment. The family took to Facebook and reminded everyone that Misty and Lee were not the only leads in the case. Police were beginning to grow slightly suspicious of Morgan Henderson. She was offering up a lot of stories to them about the teens and scenarios were beginning to conflict with one another. At first, Morgan denied even knowing Riley and Breezy at all. But in subsequent interviews with police, she did admit to them that from time to time she would see them, but that she hadn't seen or heard from them in a long while. Then, all of a sudden, she conceded that Riley did say that he was going to come by and pick up some cigarettes that night on December 29th, but that he never ended up coming by the house at all. As the investigation progressed, Morgan realized that the police were leaving no stone unturned. 
It started to make her nervous. So she finally did admit to them that Riley and Breezy did come by her house in Mammoth on the evening of December 29th, but she said they had left her house after 40 minutes. The police were now growing suspicious of Morgan, but had no hard physical evidence tying her to the case. They simply documented her stories and continued to look at other leads. On February 7th, another pair of search warrants were made public. This time the warrants were for phone records and possible Facebook messages. Remember in the last episode I mentioned that Riley and Breezy would often communicate through Snapchat and Facebook Messenger so they could use Wi-Fi to communicate and didn't have to pay for cell service. These search warrants were for the devices of Riley, Breezy, Misty, and Lee. Investigators obtained 72 days worth of Facebook records and phone messages and it took time to sift through them to possibly find the lead they were looking for. They realized that all communications to and from Riley and Breezy stopped on December 29th around 11 p.m. Who was the last person that they had been in contact with? None other than Morgan Henderson, the teller of stories and hypotheses who had given several conflicting stories to the police in the preceding weeks. On February 18th, the families posted to Facebook that an abandoned cabin was located in the area. The cabin was searched and showed no indication that the teens had ever been there. Another dead-end lead. On February 24th, the family informed the public through Facebook that Lee Shepard's truck, which had been seized by police for searches over a month before, remember the tow strap that they found in the bed of the truck, had been released back to Lee, and the police hadn't found any other evidence of foul play in relation to the interior or exterior of the vehicle. The similarities of the tow strap were merely a coincidence. On February 27th, volunteers sent out a huge search party again, and they continued searching mine shafts in the area, many of which were hundreds of feet down. They crossed several more mine locations off the list, and still, Riley and Breezy weren't found. On March 10th, the family posted that 20 more mines had been eliminated as final resting places for the two teens. Still. The case was at somewhat of a standstill, with little to no physical evidence to go off of other than that located Jeep, which didn't really tie the crime to anyone. A little over two weeks later, on March 25th, the largest leak in the case was brought to light. Morgan Henderson was driving in San Pete County, a little over an hour to the southeast of Eureka. She was alone and was pulled over for speeding. Police could tell right away that Morgan had some sort of drug in her system, and they asked her to get out of the vehicle so that the vehicle could be searched. She was acting as erratically as ever. Her vehicle had a smorgasbord of suspicious items in it. Police found multiple knives in the vehicle, an axe, a rifle, a 45 caliber handgun, and multiple boxes of ammo. Morgan was arrested for possession of dangerous weapons by a restricted person. She was taken to the police station in San Pete County for booking, and it was there that Morgan started to make all kinds of extremely shocking confessions. Partially due to some guilt, partially due to some drug use, she let it all out that day. Morgan took the police back in time to the night of December 29, 2017. She said that she had been exchanging a number of Facebook messages with Riley that day and into the evening and they had made plans to hang out that night at her house. Riley stated that he'd be bringing his girlfriend Breezy along with him as well. Morgan said to police that the two arrived at her house in Mammoth around 11 p.m. on the 29th and stayed about 40 minutes, smoking some marijuana and having some conversation. 
She said they left and walked out her door sometime before midnight. She said that shortly after the teens left, her boyfriend, Jared Baum, busted into the house fuming and on a rampage. She said that he told her that he never wanted any other men in the house, and certainly not men that Morgan had dated previously. Jared told Morgan to go outside, and they were going to go for a ride. It was then that Morgan noticed Riley's Jeep still parked in front of her house. Morgan opened the passenger door of the Jeep and peeked inside. There, in the back seat of the Jeep, she saw Riley and Morgan. Both were tied up, and both had duct tape over their mouths. She then said that she saw the teens tied up in the back seat. She began to be scared, and she turned to look at Jared, and his demeanor had completely changed. He was now utterly calm and collected. Jared had her get into the vehicle, and they drove a few miles outside of town. The town of Mammoth, where Morgan and Jared were living, is about three miles southwest of Eureka. Jared drove to a road about three miles east of Eureka that leads to several of the major mines in the Tintic region. There are two ways to get to this road from Mammoth. One is to go directly down Main Street in Eureka and then approach it just east of town. Even in small town Eureka, the vehicle might be noticed by onlookers if they were to take the Main Street route shortly after midnight on the morning of December 30th. The other way would be a much less noticeable route south of Mammoth that would take them to the Tintic Mining Road via Silver Pass and would loop around to the southwest of Eureka and approach the mines from the south. It's my belief that they took this route, and that's why no vehicle showed up that night on any security footage from Eureka as the police were conducting their investigation. Morgan continued telling police what happened. She initially confessed at the police station, but would make a statement in a courtroom months later as well, under much more sober conditions. She described Jared's demeanor, which would change several times during the ordeal that night. Here's a clip of what she said from her own mouth, courtesy of KTVX News in Salt Lake City. He'd never been mad at me like that. That had never happened before. It, was, it felt scary. She had known Jared to have a temper, but nothing she had seen in him before would lead her to believe that he was capable of what he was about to do on that cold and quiet night outside Eureka, when there was no one to hear anyone scream for help, and only the quiet sound of the wind through the sagebrush surrounding an abandoned mine. It was clear something was really wrong. So you're out there in the middle of the night, two people are tied up, and so it, it, was, it was scary. What happened next is very hard to talk about, and no one deserves what would happen to those two teens, especially considering that, by all accounts, Breezy had never even met Jared Baum before, and Riley may have had very limited interactions with him, and certainly nothing to fuel this fire of rage that Jared had within him on that chilly night. When it was clear that they were far enough away from town, Jared stopped the vehicle, and he had Morgan, Riley, and Breezy all get out. Riley and Breezy still had their hands tied up, but the duct tape had been removed from their mouths. Jared forced the teens to walk ahead of him, up a dirt hill, for well over a hundred yards. With no duct tape over their mouths, the two began to plead for their lives, and they said they wouldn't tell anyone what had happened if he would only let them go. Breezy even told Jared that she was pregnant. Jared looked down at her and calmly congratulated her and forced them to continue walking. The road dead ends at a gate, and from there, it's necessary to walk up a rocky dirt road and steep incline in order to arrive at the side of Tintic Standard Mine Number 2. 
Knowing this makes what was about to happen even all the more sinister. Jared was making the teens walk to their own deaths. I went to the mine last November and it's basically a large hole in the ground, about 10 feet in diameter, and goes straight down several hundred feet. There are a total of three Tintic standard mine shafts. Subsurface depth reaches a maximum of 479 meters, 1,572 feet, and extends 79,248 meters, 260,000 feet in length. The mining method was to horizontally cut and fill with waste rock. It was still being mined up until the early 1980s. The ore mined was composed of anargite, saragorite, and sphalerite. Brianna Bodily, formerly of KSL News, described the mine shortly after she visited it in 2018. At the beginning of February, my husband and I, we go on these adventures throughout Utah trying to get to know the, the state quite a bit better. And part of our adventure in February was a trip through Eureka. I mean, we've been there through there a million times. And up on the hill above Eureka, there are these great roads that will take you to all these old mines. And one of those mines is Tintic Standard Number 2. So describe what it's like there. It looks, I can't tell you if it's a popular place. We were there in the middle of the day. Nobody else was there, but it's covered with graffiti. It's obvious that people visit there. You know, one of those, if you've ever been to a mine, it's very common to see beer cans there. Somebody might have like, you know, lit a fire. The mine is surrounded by a fence. So Jared made Morgan Henderson and the two teens crawl through a small opening in the fence, which took them right up to the opening of the mine. He forced the two females to kneel right at the edge of the mine and Riley remained standing. Again, here is Morgan Henderson in her own words. Riley asked if he could kiss his girlfriend. And then Breezy said no and she started crying. In fact, it was Jared who wouldn't let Riley anywhere near Breezy in these moments. Riley was still standing next to Jared as Breezy continued to beg for him to let the two go and they would never tell anyone. Jared began to beat Riley, punching him over and over again. Morgan continued to describe what would happen next. I heard Riley say, I'm dying, and he was gurgling. And that's when I realized that he wasn't hitting Riley, he was stabbing Riley. It was the most horrible sound I've ever heard. Jared continued stabbing Riley even after Riley had fallen to the ground and knew he was dying. He then picked Riley up and dragged him to the edge of the mine shaft and dropped his body down the shaft at Tintic Standard Mine Number 2. Morgan testified that Jared said, Goodbye, Riley, as he dropped the teen into the dark abyss. Jared turned around and walked back to Morgan and Breezy. He knelt down next to Breezy. And it seemed like he had his arms around her, but I'm not sure. Um, and he said, It's okay, darling. And he went Shh, to her, and then um, I felt warmth on my leg. Okay, and what did you perceive at that point? I, it was her blood. Jared had cut Breezy's throat. Morgan then said that Jared gently and carefully, in her words, picked up Breezy and walked over to the mine shaft, dropping her into the mine as well. He's got this huge grin on his face, like he's enjoying himself. And he was... Um, he did later, he laughed about it. He said that was like lambs to the slaughter. They didn't even fight. Jared described Breezy as collateral damage and that had she not been there, she wouldn't have had to die. 
He threatened Morgan that night that if she ever said anything to anyone about what had happened, he would kill her and her son. Next, the two would dispose of some of the evidence. It was growing late, and Jared didn't want to take the time to start a fire or dig a hole to dispose of the evidence that night, so the two drove to a sludge barrel near their home in Mammoth and dumped any remaining items of the teens in the barrel. The next day, the two did build a fire and burn the rest of the evidence, as well as cleaning themselves in bleach. Morgan did, after all, have some of Breezy's blood on her. They also took Riley's Jeep and dumped it at the location where it would be later found by police. Morgan was present for that, too, and she would ride back to Mammoth in the van with Jared, still not believing what was happening. When Morgan initially confessed that day in San Pete County, she did also tell police that she had taken mushrooms and was going to find a place to commit suicide. She was tired of having to live with her thoughts from the night of December 29th. She was between a rock and a hard place. She was afraid of Jared killing her if she confessed, but she couldn't live with the guilt. The sinking and dark feeling that she was at fault for the deaths of Riley and Breezy ate her up inside. Morgan knew she had been the one who had invited the teens over that night in December that started the dastardly chain reaction. Morgan agreed to lead the police to Tintic Standard Mine Number 2 and to describe to them at the scene of the crime what had happened that night. She was still charged with obstruction of justice for misleading the police several times during the first three months of the investigation. She was sentenced to serve three years as long as she agreed to testify in the upcoming trial as the star witness against Jared Baum. The trial was delayed due to COVID-19 restrictions and doesn't have a set date to resume. It's likely that Jared will be given the death penalty as the murders were incredibly egregious. The bodies were found on a ledge about 100 feet down the mine. Breezy had landed directly on top of Riley. Had the two not landed on that small ledge, they would have dropped to depths as much as four times deeper, and it's possible that the two bodies might never have been recovered. This was a small bit of luck in an otherwise sinister case of murder. We've been keeping you up to date all afternoon as police believe they've found the bodies of Breezy Ottenson and Riley Powell. They've been missing for months. The bodies discovered in Tintic Standard Mine Number 2. This is at the edge of southern Utah County. I went to the mine in November 2020. You can get fairly close to it on a paved road that winds to the southwest from Highway 6. There's a memorial there now for Riley and Breezy, two innocent lives taken too soon. The road dead ends at a gate where you have to get out of your vehicle and walk up a steep incline over 100 yards to the mine. It was sad to think that the two teens had walked those same footsteps. The fence is still around the mine opening with a newer outer fence added to it as well. Yeah, they did put kind of a new fence on it since it happened, I think. You used to just have that small one around it. That's a big hole. I thought it was just like, 150 feet, you said. Just an open. Yeah, almost straight. She said that when she was standing on the outside of it, you can, just with the sunlight, you can see down about 100 feet almost, like 75 feet because of the angle of the sun. Just kill somebody and then toss them down Dang. I have visited a lot of places in my many years exploring Utah and the West, but very few were as somber as Tintic Standard Mine Number Two and standing at this place that held so much promise for generations of miners, but represents sadness for the families of Riley Powell and Braylene Otteson. 
May Riley and Breezy rest in peace. I'm Chad Mortensen. Thank you for listening to Saints and Sinners, True Crime and the History of the West.